I remember when I was young, um, a little friend came over and she stayed for dinner and she went home and I'm not sure what she told her mom, but her mom came back to uh, my aunt who used to look after me and said, um, you know, Ashley found dinner at your house so bizarre. What is it that you eat for, you know, what are you guys eating over there? And I remember that being a very, very painful experience. What? She'd never had Chinese food before. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Okay. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. We are getting into pastry today and one of, I think, the most simplest pastries to make, but also one of the most difficult to master. Well, from my experience anyway. Shoot pastry can be made sweet and or savoury and are great on their own, but they can also turn into wonderful French pastries like the eclair or the croquembouche. So where would I go to find out how to master the art of shoe pastry then? Well, I like to call myself the Australian Julia Childs, and I would go so far as to say that today's guest is the modern Julia Childs, or the Gen Y Julia, married to a diplomat, author of many successful books, mum and all-round truly fabulous person, the wonderful Anne Ma. And thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious. Thanks for having me, Andrew, and what an introduction. I'm very oh, flattered. It's true. I'm excited. I think it's been so long since we first met. It was actually in person at the American Library in Paris, I think it was, for your, right. your book launch um, then with Patricia Wells. That's right. Mm-hmm. I think it was. was. It was fabulous. Since then, so much has changed in both of our lives. Um, but for yourself, and currently now, you're actually living in Hanoi. Is that right? That's correct. We moved here uh, in September, so we've been here for about nine months and uh, plan to stay here for three years. Uh, my husband has an assignment at the American Embassy, and we are really loving Vietnam. Um, it surprised me how much it has won me over, um, although, of course, we're uh, in a bit of a lockdown still with COVID as the world sort of struggles to get vaccinated and open up again. I've never been to Vietnam myself, but I've always wanted to go. One of the things, there's obviously a French connection uh, to Vietnam and uh, a lot of influence there. Obviously, you've been to France so many times and um, explored around. What's the influences that you see when you're in Vietnam and uh, Hanoi in particular from the French? In Hanoi, um, so during the time we've been here, I've been able to travel a little bit, which has been wonderful, um, in sort of in between different lockdowns. Um, and one thing I've, that has really struck me um, in Hanoi and also in um, Hoi An, which is a city on the in central Vietnam, is that the even the graphic design of the letters, the street numbers are very French. So it's I, it's something I noticed immediately. Um, the little blue plaques and the font they use for the street numbers, the way the street numbers are written, are immediately transport me to France. And sometimes I'll be walking down um, a little alley because the way that the city is laid out is that there are large boulevards and then little networks or webs of alleys that lead to the bigger streets, which to me also is very French. Um, And I'll pass a house that looks just so much like a villa, uh, a French villa with, you know, flowers, bougainvillea, and um, the the iron 
gates that are, you know, sort of the elegant swirls of iron ironwork. Um, so in that sense, I would say definitely similarities or leftover colonial influences, for better or worse. Um, and then the food, um, you know, baguettes, French bread is very commonly eaten and eaten by just regular old people on a daily basis. Um, the baguette is very much a part of the diet, not just in sandwiches, because everyone knows and loves the banh mi sandwich, but also, uh, which, uh, by the way, the banh mi sandwich can um, often has pate. That's a, one of the things that they put in it, you know, like a really authentic banh mi would have a, a spread of pate and then whatever meats you have, um, and then some pickled vegetables. But then also they eat bread a lot um, with Vietnamese sort of home cooking. So like a stew would be accompanied by a chunk of bread. There's other food influences there from the French too. I mean, the pho is from the pot of pho, is that right? Or something like that? So that's what lines? I've heard. Um, yes. that's, as legend mm-hmm. has it. And I actually, <laughs> wrote, I think I've said that in one of my books. Um, I'm not sure if it's true, but I would like to believe it's true. Um, pho is made from large cuts of beef, like quattro pho, and it is simmered um, into a rich broth over long periods of time. Can you actually tell us what your husband does or is this all top secret? Hush, hush. <laughs> well, no, it's not top secret. He's actually the number two at the embassy. So he's what we call the deputy chief of mission. And right now, while we are waiting for our new ambassador who has been nominated and we hope will arrive in September or maybe even sooner, um, he is currently the chargé d'affaires. Ah, see, I had a vision that he was uh, a cross between 007 and Inspector Gadget. (laughs) Well, uh, it's not quite as romantic as that, but um, it's still very exciting work. You did mention the bun me before, and we talked a little bit about the French food, but just as a side note, um, what is the food like in Vietnam? Restaurants are currently closed. Um, We had a a uh, wave started in late mid, early May um, and closed restaurants until a few weeks ago. Um, they opened briefly for about two weeks and now they've closed again because there's another wave that is more centered in Saigon, um, but obviously want to control it um, and make sure that it does not break out here. Um, one of my favorite dishes that I have discovered here is called bun cha. Um, it's not something I had heard of before. Uh, I think in France they eat a, a variation of it that's called bobun, or maybe they call it bunbo. I can't remember, um, but I think it's called bobun, and it is a. But here in Hanoi, it's um, one of the signature classic dishes of Hanoi, um, eaten at sort of like a just a casual, often a street food sort of sidewalk on the sidewalk or a simple, very simple cafe. Um, It's a bowl of the white rice noodles, just a plain bowl of white rice noodles. And then on the side, a huge heaping platter of greens. So fresh lettuce, herbs, um, you know, of the herbs, there would be mint and um, Shiso leaf and basil and coriander, um, just heaping plate of that. And then also another dish would have grilled pork meatballs or like flat patties. Um, 
and possibly also grilled pork tenderloin, um, you know, sort of like a kebab on a skewer, skewered. And then um, also there would be a, another little dish of spring rolls, fried, deep fried spring rolls. And then accompanying everything is a deep, large bowl of a thin, brothy sauce that is with a fish sauce and it's a little bit sweet, um, savory, um, and they're usually um, thin pieces, slender pieces of uh, sort of crunchy vegetable in there, um, like daikon or carrots. And you dip the noodles into the broth and then you slurp it up. Um, you put the herbs into the broth and, you know, you just sort of dip and slurp. And it's just a delicious street food meal that you can have, you know, just it's a quick, fast meal. Sounds delicious. I can't wait to come and visit you. And I've never actually been to Vietnam or to Thailand. And my husband, Peter, has been to Thailand and he's always telling me he loves chili. Hence the reason why we moved to France. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he loves telling me that uh, uh, how the chilies are just so flavoursome and the herbs are so flavoursome mm, there. The her- yeah, the herbs are really. You are American, but uh, actually have uh, American Chinese heritage. Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. So whereabouts in the States did you grow up? So I was born and I grew up in Southern California, um, just south of Los Angeles is an area called Orange County. There, when you were growing up, was there a large Chinese American community in that area then? No, not, not very. No. Um, I remember it was, it's, it is the part of Orange County where I grew up, um, which is a town city called Huntington Beach was and remains very white and very conservative. Um, And I remember going to elementary school and I was one of only a handful of Asian kids. Um, Probably what, you know, I don't even really remember that any other Chinese American little girls uh, in my, in my class, I'm sure there were at my school. Um, but there were other Asians. So did you have that experience um, with being uh, a Chinese American? Did you have that Chinese culture with your food at home and definitely, and definitely. Um, my my dad was born in the United States as well, so he's second generation. Um, so we are our family speaks English. You know, I spoke English. That was my first language, and my parents speak English with each other. Um, my dad does speak Chinese, but it's, you know, it's the Chinese of a second generation child. Um, so, uh, I think because of that, I was exposed to, it wasn't a typical immigrant's childhood. That being said, we did eat Chinese food every night growing up when I was a kid. Um, my dad would prepare, you know, a couple of dishes, fresh vegetables, um, and rice. We always had rice. And, um, yeah, that I remember when I was young, um, a little friend came over and she stayed for dinner and she went home and I'm not sure what she told her mom, but her mom came back to, uh, my aunt who used to look after me and said, um, you know, Ashley found dinner at your house. So bizarre. 
what is it that you eat for, you know, what are you guys eating over there? And I remember that being a very, very painful experience. Gosh, I wonder what was, what, she'd never had Chinese food before. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. Okay. So what was your fondest memories, food memories of growing up? Absolutely. My dad's cooking. Um, he is, he, he loves a project. So when I was growing up, you know, he had a sourdough starter and used to make waffles for us. And did he have a name for his sourdough starter? He did not. He did not. Oh, okay. Right. Sure. Um, yep. But I remember his waffles very, very clearly. Um, and I make them now, actually, not his same recipe, which has lost to time. But, um, uh, you know, sourdough waffles remind me of my of growing up. Do you um, have a name for your sourdough starter? I don't know. Because, oh. you know, mine's been mine. I used to, but then it got thrown away. So now I have a new one, etc. <laughs> you know how it is. Um, another thing my dad really loves to do is he has a smoker. I guess it's called an egg, you know, the big green egg. So I have very fond memories of him smoking everything. You know, we, we usually have a smoked turkey at the holidays, um, smoked salmon. Um, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up wanting to be a writer? Is that what you dreamed of being when you were a child? I loved reading when I was a kid. And I do remember wanting to be a writer and, of course, being discouraged because who could ever make a living as a writer? Um, and it and it really um, seemed impossible to me. It was only um, after I moved to New York City, I, I worked in book publishing. That became my real dream after college, uh, being an editor at a publishing house. And I, and I did that for um, a few years. And then when I got married, I had to leave book publishing, which I missed a lot because I really enjoyed it, uh, being an editor. And I, that's when I started to write because when I got married, we moved to Beijing for my husband's work about a month later. Right. So he's traveled around, you've both traveled around quite a bit then. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. We were in Beijing for four years. That was, uh, we were newlyweds and that's when I started writing, um, worked for an expat magazine in Beijing. I was the dining editor and that's how (laughs) I really began. Those were my first clips. I started pitching other larger, um, American publications at that time. But I, I started out as, you know, expat magazine, and that also that job really gave me a foundation into Chinese cuisine because Beijing I didn't know it when I moved there but Beijing has a wonderful representation of um, Chinese regional cuisine. The French food is something that is um, obviously uh, you've, you're very passionate about. Um, but when was the first time you actually went to France? Do you remember so, that? I do remember. Um, <laughs> so. I, one thing that really, I think maybe influenced my interest in France is that my mother grew up with a French, a a stepmother who was half French and half Chinese. And she really um, hated all her stepchildren and she sent them off to boarding school. And so my mother grew up in boarding schools in Hong Kong and England. Um, 
but she also before you know before she was old enough to go to boarding school went to a french kindergarten and she really absorbed the language uh, and remember remembers it still even just from those one or two years yep and so for some some reason that really sparked an interest in france to me um when I was five or six, maybe six or seven, we went on a family trip to Europe. We visited England first. My mother went to university there, so it was very fun to, to visit. And then I remember it was very cold in England, um, one of the famous British summers. Then from England, we went to Paris, and there they were having some sort of heat wave in Paris, and it was hot and bright and sunny, and you know people were sort of half-dressed, and we were sweating everywhere, and there were smells and colors and food, and I just, I fell in love. Um, and so, yeah, so that is the first time I was in, ever went to France. Jumping forward, the mastering the art of French uh, eating, not mastering the art of French cooking, but mastering the art of French eating is one of your books. How did this come about? So this book was tells the story of a year I spent in France, in Paris, alone. Um, my husband and I had dreamed of serving at the embassy in Paris, and um, we would, you know open up the atlas, open up the the map of France and sort of plot a route across France on a road trip. And that was just something we would chat about over a glass of wine. It was, you know, something we really all had always wanted to do and to, to live there for three years and serve at the embassy um, was, was my dream. Uh, he's also a great Francophile and speaks very good French and had lived there before. Um, so we ended up I couldn't believe it. We got the assignment. He got the assignment and we moved to Paris. Um, it was my dream come true. And he, uh, about six months after we got there, he was called to an assignment in Iraq, Baghdad, for a year. But I was allowed to stay in Paris while he went. So the book tells the story of the year I spent there by myself um, in a, you know, it was at the time I my French was I had learned French, but it wasn't as good as it is now. And uh, I was exploring a new country and I ended up doing many of the much of the trip that we had talked about across France, discovering the 10 signature dishes of French cuisine um, and researching and meeting with cooks and farmers and chefs and little old ladies about the history of each of these dishes and how it relate re, how they relate to the culture of France and the region and the terroir and um and, th- and that's really how I how I got to know France was through traveling around so traveling around France interviewing those people then I mean that's just an experience that so many people would love to have what is one of the the fondest memories what who is who really stands out from the book that you met at that time I mean there's so many wonderful people in it but who really what what story really stands out to you that you remember well one that I've been thinking about recently because it is summer is the um, the day, the morning I spent in a little village in Provence called Bonnieu, preparing soup au pistou for the village fete. Um, 
Provence is known for many dishes, but a lot of them seem to be from the Côte d'Azur or Marseille, like bouillabaisse and um, yeah. Soupe au pistu, I would say, is the home-cooked dish of Provence. It is like a minestrone um, that is flavored with pistu, which is not pesto, <laughs> as I learned. Uh, but it is like pesto in that it's... Um, a blend of crushed basil leaves, olive oil, garlic, uh, no cheese, no nuts. Yeah. Um, so the village fete, they, you know, is a, uh, an event for the entire village. People would sign up for about, you know, maybe three, 400 people to come and eat the soupo pistu um, in the middle of the town square. And I uh, helped this group of, older women prepare the soup <laughs> so it was a it was a wonderful experience lots of opinions we all know you as a fabulous french foodie but you also uh studied italian food uh how did that come about in italy is that in italy, right in bologna yeah. in bologna i um was living in beijing at the time and decided to apply online to the james beard foundation scholarship program and I was awarded a, 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 a course in Bologna, which was a wonderful experience of, you know, going to a Parmigiano-Reggiano producer, um, visiting an attic where they make balsamic vinegar, you know, where they, they, they make it in the attic. They call it an attichaya, yeah. So the barrels get pro progressively smaller and we would, taste from them and um we made pizza at a pizza restaurant with a wood-burning oven and it was just a wonderful way to discover a, a regional cuisine before I had really before I really understood what regional cuisine was does the French and Italian food um uh culinary experience have in common do you think well they overlap a lot and I think there's a great rivalry between them um, like I was just saying with the pesto and pistu, uh, is a, <laughs> I mean, supo pistu, you could even say if you dared that it's like minestrone, <laughs> but no one in, no one in Provence would ever agree with that. Um, so I do think there's a great rivalry between them and there is also that same, recognition and and pride of place um in which each the the food of each region is such a reflection of its place in the world and and its and its climate and um its history getting into our topic today which is shoe pastry um, i wanted to chat with you about shoe pastry was particularly because I saw your Instagram and you were making some chouquettes in Hanoi there. And as an Australian, it's often a difficult thing because we have uh, warmer weather. And uh, for me, I do find making pastries in summer very hard. First question is, do you have any tips for pastry making in general when you're in a hot climate? For pastry making in general? Okay, well, I have to say I'm not actually a very uh, good pastry baker as in pat prise or pat frite those i still i wouldn't say i struggle with them but i they i don't consider them friends well your instagram account does not show that <laughs> um <laughs> i think 
that to make pastry in a hot climate, one tip I would I would say is to use a different kind of crust. So, um, for example, there is a kind of crust you can make with melted butter where you press it into the tart pan instead of rolling out the dough. And I feel that with uh, sh- when you add sugar to pastry, it allows it to, to remain more tender. So for a sweet dough, a pâte sucrée, um, I feel is more forgiving. Um, and you can use that press-in method. What is choux pastry? So choux pastry is interesting because I was looking in La Russe Gastronomique today and they the, the thing they said is choux pastry is more of a paste. It is not really a dough, although it's you know, I suppose we call it a choux dough or choux pastry, but um, it is actually more of a paste and it's made with hot water or sometimes milk or a mixture of the two. Um, that you bring to a boil. So it's a hot, it is considered a hot water dough. Um, and then you make, you melt butter. It's, but you know, the liquid with the melted butter, and then you add in the flour and mix that over a low heat. And that's actually my number one tip is, is the mixing to, to do it for long enough. Um, I like to set a timer and do it for two minutes. This is before you add eggs. Yes, to dry out the to dry out the dough. Is choux pastry French? It is French. It is French. Um, it was uh, perfected by the pastry chef of Carême, Antonin Carême. Um, yep, and it was, I think, originally a sweet dough. But one of the things I love about choux pastry is that it's so versatile. It can either be sweet or savory. And the other thing I really love about it is that it really can be made with whatever with the with ingredients that you generally have on hand. So it's for me, I like to use water, I think it makes a crisper shell. So water, uh, butter, eggs, flour, that's basically it. And then it's up to you how you want to flavor it. You just mentioned then the chef Antoine, I can't pronounce his last name. How do we pronounce his last Cahem. name? Cahem. Cahem. That's it. But he, for those that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about him? He was actually, um, from my understanding, sort of the first celebrity chef, so to speak. That's right. Um, I don't, I did read a biography of him, but it's been several years. Um, he, he was a celebrity chef. He, I think, had many celebrity clients. <laughs> yeah. And a restaurant in Paris that was very popular. And and I think sorry, I'm just breaking in here. I think he's the one who invented the the tower. I I'm, the name of the, the tower. The croquembouche. The croquembouche, that's right. Yes. So so common now at weddings. Um I think he is the one who invented that. Well, I was actually going to ask you about the croquembouche. It is a traditional wedding cake and it is made from um, choux. But, oh, my gosh, to make one, it just seems like you have to make so many choux. I mean, how many choux do I need to make for a choux of croquembouche? And is it worth it? 
I mean, probably up into the hundreds, right? Gosh. One of the things I was very grateful for in my experience on MasterChef is that I didn't actually get to the stage where they might actually make me want to make one, um, which was a good thing. Um, yes. But uh, it does um, – the actual making of them scares me. Uh, but, look, yes, I do love everything that they're about. I mean, it's uh, shoe pastry with cream inside and then sugar on the outside. I mean, what, what can be – you know, better than that, really. Um, once I've mastered the art, so to speak, of a shoe pastry, what other delicious desserts or, or pastries can I make apart from uh, croque and bush? So, I mean, shoe pastry is the basis for, you know, the eclair, the cream puff, the profiterole, which is just a shoe bun stuffed with ice cream and chocolate sauce on top. Um there are the chouquette that you were just talking about, which I really love to make because I feel like they have so much bang for their buck. You know, you have all these simple ingredients and then you just need one special ingredient, which is the pearl sugar, um, which is sort of large crystals of sugar to sprinkle on top. Um, and you, I like to use spoons to form them onto the sheet in little, little balls the size of cherry tomatoes, let's say. Um, and there they are, just sort of dumpy little pasty balls, and you pop them in the oven and they just explode. Um, and I find that magical. I've had the experience, and I don't know if you're going to be able to tell me if uh, what I did wrong or not, but I had that wonderful experience where I just did everything that you said. And, um, and then I took them out of the oven and they just deflated. I think that happened. What did I do wrong? Did you start with a hot oven and then lower the temperature? Maybe they weren't cooked enough. So I like to start with a fairly hot oven, like let's say 200 degrees Celsius. And then after about 10 minutes, I like to lower it to about 180 and cook them for the remainder of the time. Because I think, well, and also the, the remember the, the tip of cooking your dough, which is before you add the eggs, over the flame for a full two minutes. That might have been what I did. Because didn't. that helps evaporate the, the liquid from the dough. And I think that's a really important step. Yep. Okay. I think that might have been the case. Maybe I didn't do that. And so then I take it off the heat to add the eggs? Yeah. So I, so no, no. So I like to cook it. I, I do set the timer because no matter if I don't set the timer, it seems like forever, but it's only been like 45 seconds. Um, yes. So I, <laughs> so I do set the timer. I take it off the heat and I let it rest for another two minutes just to cool it off a little bit. Then I start adding the eggs. Where did you learn how to make a shoe pastry? So the I the way I perfected my shoe pastry is because my la when my last book came out, which is a novel, it's called The Lost Vintage, and it's a sort of World War II um, dual narrative set in Burgundy, in a vineyard in Burgundy. And one of the things about uh, wine tasting in Burgundy is that gougere, which are made of shoe pastry, are a savory cheese puff, and they come from Burgundy. They're what traditionally people ate um, to, clean, to, to cleanse their palate between wines at a wine tasting. So to celebrate the launch of this novel, I decided to create a recipe for gougere that you know people could make for their book clubs, or I made them for my book events. Um, and in perfecting this recipe, I made a lot of gougere, <laughs> a lot. And that's really, I think, how I, how I perfected my technique. Um, but I think gougere, 
are also, they have the same magical quality as uh, Chouquette in that there they are, these little blobs of dough and you pop them in the oven and, you know, they just explode and they're hollow in the center. Um, but they're also very easy to make. So there was a while there where my daughter, um, who was five at the time, we would make gougere whenever she was home from school, sick, or if there was a snow day, we would, that, that became, you know, most people make banana bread or chocolate chip cookies. We would make gougere mainly because while I was practicing, I was trying to develop this recipe, but also, uh, we usually have the ingredients on hand. Do you have a, f- a preferred filling for a, a soup pastry? Well, I actually just like them plain. So if there's no filling, um, a chouquette is just the sweet choux pastry with the, the crystal pearl sugar sprinkled on top. And then a gougere also is hollow and plain. Um, what I really love is the the crisp texture that gives way to the soft interior. When you go to Paris, what's your favorite place to go to have uh, a choux pastry, whether it's the chouquette or an eclair or something like that? Oh, um, hmm. I, I find, well, there are so many, but I do love an eclair. That, that a, a cho- eclair au chocolat is my favorite um, treat at the at the boulangerie um you know some people like the flan some people like the chocolate croissant etc my my very favorite is the éclair au chocolat moi aussi <laughs> um and maison au chocolat maison de chocolat the sort of chain chocolate shop they have a very nice éclair au chocolat but what they really have that is great is an éclair au caramel i don't know if you've tried it there but it is really, really delicious. I often get uh, disappointed because I'm not a big fan of coffee desserts. And I often think, oh, it's a clear caramel because it's got the sort of, it looks like it's a caramel sort mm-hmm. of top, but it's not the chocolate one. And I buy it and it's a coffee one. Agreed. Oh. I also, I feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but no, it's good for my French because now I have to actually ask and actually go there. <laughs> and so what's improving my French is the fact that I'm afraid of getting a cafe dessert. <laughs> you're in Hanoi and uh, you're you're waiting so you can travel again, um, I'm sure, and come and visit us in France at some stage. Uh, but what's next on the horizon for you? Well, I just finished a book about three weeks ago, uh, another novel, Um, And it is about the year Jacqueline Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's wife, uh, spent in Paris as a student. So 1949 to 1950. Uh, Back then, she was known as Jacqueline Bouvier. Um, She studied for a year at the Sorbonne and Sciences Po and Reed Hall, which is the American Center for uh, University Students. Um, she lived with a French family uh, in their drafty, bourgeois, but unheated home. Um, they were war survivors. Um, the mother had been imprisoned in a, in a, in a concentration camp um, because she was a spy. She was a resistant spy and had been deported uh, in the last days before the liberation. So there was um, a great deal of trauma that the family was still dealing with. The father, the father died, actually, in a, in a different camp. 
Um, they were both <laughs> bourgeois resistance spies. Right. Um, yes. And she called it the happiest year of her life. It was a, an Amazing. incredibly formative experience for her. So everything we know about her um, trip in 1961, the state visit of 1961 with President Kennedy, was informed by that year. Um Everything about, you know, de- decorating the White House, um, how she famously redecor- redecorated the White House was informed by that year. Um, her style, her interest in literature and cinema and the arts, all of it um, was really formed by that period. It must be such an, um, a fascinating experience and amazing experience to be researching something like that, uh, a book like that. So the book actually began as a New York Times travel article that came out a f- couple of years ago. Um, and it was there was so much material that I found that I wanted to write about it more. But she was also a very private person. So there are no real letters, um, no journals nothing. I knew that fiction, which, which made, which led me to believe that fiction was really the only way that I could craft a narrative for, for the story. Um, I was very lucky for the interview, uh, sorry, for the article to interview her former host sister, um, who was also born in 1929. They were exactly the same age. Um, and it just had very, very fond memories of that year as well. Wow. Well, if it becomes a um, a film, um, you can always send uh, the producers my way. I mean, I think I I've got a startling uh, startling resemblance to JFK myself. So. Yeah, yeah. He's not really in it, but she does have a different love interest. Uh, so, so I could be no. I, I'll stick with the JFK the brief okay. five minutes. I'm okay <laughs> with that, you know. And it's been wonderful chatting to you. You've given me and our um, listeners here at Fabulously Delicious some great tips on shoe pastry, and it's been a joy to hear about yourself more. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you again uh, in the future. Uh, thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real treat. So now we would have mastered the art of shoe pastry, all thanks to Anne Ma. And thank you, you have been a fabulous guest. And I can't wait to have Anne on the podcast again sometime soon. And I'm so looking forward to that book coming out about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Oh my God, very exciting. Can't wait. If you liked Fabulously Delicious, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, could you also give me a five-star review? I mean, you can give me other starred reviews, but look, five is enough, I think. That would be great. If you'd like to support Fabulously Delicious and me, of course, through making this podcast, then you can do so by buying me a coffee via Buy Me a Croissant. Yes, no, sorry, that's the other way around. You can buy me a croissant via the Buy Me a Coffee website. The link is in the show notes. Also, if you'd like, I can help you plan a fabulous France holiday and a Paris one as well. 
I got all the top tips and restaurants, places to go, food to eat, any recommendations on where to stay, etc. I can help you out. I can even put you in touch with fabulous people that can do private tours in Paris, in Lyon, in Nice, and so many other places. So if you'd like to do that, you can book in also via buymeacoffee.com and the link in the description show notes. I can do a Zoom call for one hour to help you plan a fabulous holiday. I'm Andrew Pryor. This is Fabulously Delicious. I hope you'll come and join me next week for another episode. And remember, as I always say, whatever you do, do it fabulously. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!